0: Welcome to the Music, Mind & Movement podcast. This show features interviews with musicians, educators, health professionals, and many more who take a holistic view of the musician's life. Together we explore some of the unique physical and mental challenges that musicians face, and how we can meet these challenges in ways that help us grow both as musicians and as healthy, creative, resilient humans. Hello, and thank you for tuning back in. I had a little bit of an unplanned, although ultimately sort of intentional, hiatus from the podcast. Um, when I first started the podcast last year, my goal was to be very, very consistent with making sure to get a new episode out every two weeks. And I was pretty successful with that last year. What I didn't know when I started the podcast was that each episode would take me probably between 12 and 15 hours by the time I do the preparation for the interviews and interviews and editing and all that stuff. It really takes quite a long time for each episode. And um, last of all, I just got caught up with some other projects at work. And it meant that if I was going to continue with the podcast, I was going to have to do that at home when I was with, I was going to have to do that during family time. And I didn't want to do that. So I decided to just sort of give things a little bit of a rest uh, but then after Christmas, we had a giant blizzard here where I live in Newfoundland, Canada. So we have this enormous blizzard like no one had ever seen before. And the entire city was shut down under a state of emergency for about eight days and everything was closed. So it meant that a bunch of interviews that I'd had scheduled had to get pushed. And so through the jigs and the reels, I ended up coming back a little later than I had anticipated. But... Here we are, and I am really pleased that you have joined me, and I appreciate your patience, and I really appreciate all the little notes that you send telling me how the podcast has um, had an influence on you and helped you in your own journey. That just makes me really, really happy. So today on the show I've got Gwendolyn Mason. Gwendolyn is a violinist. She's a very active soloist, chamber musician, recording artist, and artistic director of festivals. Many of the guests on the show have been people who perform, but maybe who don't have performing at the centre of their lives. For Gwendolyn, performing is at the centre of her life, and it has been for a very, very long time. She's been active as a soloist since she was quite young, and as a teacher since she was quite young. She'll tell us about it in this interview. It's a funny story. And she did encounter some injuries earlier in her career, and so she talks about how she dealt with this and how the... Process of recovering from injury led her not only to rethink her technique and her overall relationship with the violin, but how it also led her to really look at her entire life. So she talks about how she really had to explore what kinds of food she was eating, how and when she was sleeping, um, what types of exercise and how much exercise she got. So she really takes this very very broad lens on wellness. So we talk about this and how this has played out in her own life. We talk about some of the challenges that she has faced in helping her students or encouraging her students to adopt a more sustainable view of their long-term development. We also talk about a new course that Gwendolyn has created that's coming up in Switzerland in April. It is called The Exhale, and it's a course aimed to give string players A variety of perspectives on holistic well-being for musicians. So in addition to having some private lessons and chamber music, musicians attending this course will also explore a variety of movement modalities, meditation, there'll be some cooking classes and some sort of gentle talk about nutrition. And the idea is to Sort of provide a buffet of wellness options in the hopes that attendees will be able to identify one or two things that they can really explore in their own lives. So it sounds like a wonderful course. I kind of want to somehow see if I can take up the viola or something between now and April. This is unlikely, but if it sounds like something that you would be into, there is still time to register. And I've got the website for the program, the Exhale, linked in the show notes at www.musicmindandmovement.com. So if it sounds like something that you might be interested particularly if you are in Europe, uh, check it out. I think that's enough for me. Here is Gwendolyn. Gwendolyn, hello and welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm excited to be talking to you. Me too. Um, usually we start off with a little musical autobiography. So I'm wondering if you can talk about how you got started and what kept you going and um, how your career has evolved, including what you're doing now.
1: Um, I come from a very musical background. I'm the fourth generation musician and pedagogue in our family. Um before me, there were three women who all taught piano. Um, then my mother, who is a viola player and a violin player, who is married to my father, who's also the same, a violin and viola player. Um, my parents and I and my brother have moved around uh, Europe and South Africa uh, for my for greater parts of my youth. My parents settled in Dublin where they have a music school for gifted uh, young children. Um, And I basically grew up in a music school. So I've been surrounded by music my whole life. Um, And I began playing when I was five. I began playing piano when I was three, violin when I was five. Um, And I've been standing on stage in some form uh, since that age. And um, throughout my studies, I was performing. So I was sort of combining tours with studies, um, third-level studies, I should say. Um, And over the years, um, I think you might call me a virtuoso in as much (laughs) as um, I have to be careful with how I use that word. I don't mean it of myself. Um, As far as I'm concerned, I'm just a student. I'm still, I'm the eternal student. I'm uh, learning every day. The virtuoso in the sense of my repertoire. So I play a lot of the bravura repertoire um, and um, I have a huge emphasis on the concerto repertoire Um, And it's only in later years that my love for chamber music, it was one that I could develop because I've been performing as a soloist since a very young age. Mm -hmm. Um, And I made my debut with orchestra when I was 13. Um, So I've been playing substantial works most of my life. I've been on tour or traveling throughout the continents most of my life. Um, And I find what I do to be incredibly inspiring and uh, I love what I do very much. I was um, also teaching since a very young age because of the school. My mom once woke up with a manic fever, uh, not manic. and She herself is not manic, but the fever, <laughs> the fever was, was intense. And, um, I think I was 12 or 13 years old when she rushed into my room before I was supposed to go to school and she more or less said, listen, um, I need you to stay home from school. So my first reaction was, yay. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I then she was like, yes, because you need to replace me. I was like, excuse me, what? She goes, I don't have the time to call off all the students. And some of her students travel from the south or the west of Ireland to see her once a week. I mean, those are substantial journeys that they're taking. Yeah. Um, and so they were already on the train uh, or in their cars coming up to see her. There was She wasn't really in a position to call it off. Um, and this is the time before mobile phones, so I began teaching. <laughs> I was literally <laughs> thrown in the deep end um and um I became a, a professor of music in geneva in, uh, at the age of thirty one mm-hmm. um and I was thrown in the deep end there too. I had never had a university position that way, and began teaching um something i I love and do to this day um But I've noticed along the way that the biggest hurdle for classical musicians today, um, beyond ideas of philosophy uh, or interpretation or what direction of music you want to go in, I mean, you can be a classical musician or a jazz musician or whatever, um, if you play the violin or viola, and you have as rigorous a schedule as most of the musicians that I would be confronted with or or involved with every day have, you are likely to encounter physical issues or Mm -hmm. concerns if you don't um, address these at a very, very, very early age. Um, And that's a little bit how... um, due to my own experiences with those concerns, and also being affected um, by by stress and by physical uh, issues to do with alignment and to do with how uh, I used to move and how I move now, or to do with lifestyle. I've undergone a huge um, process of, I'd nearly I'd need to go so far as to say rebirth, in the last decade or so um, in my quest for finding a way to perform and play on a daily basis with as much pleasure and as much, um, peace, um, as possible.
0: Cool. So I I was going to ask how you became, um, passionate about well-being for musicians. And so I get the sense from what you said, this is very much out of your own, um, struggle. Were you, were you, did you experience injury?
1: Uh, yes. I mean, it it depends on how we want to qualify injury. Right. Um, Injury sounds to me, I don't know how you understand it to be, it sounds like something acute, you know, someone that sort of just steps in the door and bam, there it is. Yeah. Um, I find through my own experiences from observing other musicians and from teaching um, both young gifted children and third level students at bachelor and master's level, that um, injury in the sense of being a musician is rarely acute. Mm. it's usually a stealth form of (laughs) chronic (laughs) pain and and pain is also a very interesting concept on so many levels it's such a complex and obviously it's a very highly complex uh, um, topic but I can I have the sense that a lot of musicians in certainly classical music again that's the that's the space in music where I am most familiar yeah um have an either underlying or, or very apparent, um, struggle with pain. Uh, and pain can be something you feel physically. Uh, it can be something you feel emotionally. It can be something that is happening to you psychologically. And, um, very rarely can those three be pulled apart. Um, they usually are in a wonderful harmony together, <laughs> um, and it's extremely difficult to, particularly as a as a music teacher, know how to um, solve the problems of others. Let alone yourself, of course. In my particular f- case, um, I had a very subtle problem. Um, I had a, a problem that I was leaning my head slightly too far forward whilst performing. Um, which was creating a vast amount of um tension on the back of my neck. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases, I was raising my shoulders while playing, not just as a form of expression on stage, but uh, as a as an um, unconscious movement throughout my playing, and particularly the the this very subtle issue of the neck, which is quite hard to spot if you're not looking for it in the first place um, ended up causing me migraines which I wasn't able to identify as a migraine because I'd never had those before Mm. Um, and it came to the point where um, not just playing but just life in general became a daily struggle Um, and it lasted that that real struggle that sort of intense sense of um, I'm not sure what's happening here and I don't know whether I can continue whatsoever in any shape or form um, that lasted for at least a year and a half as I went on this extremely long search for ways of solving, or first of all, identifying the problem, Yeah. Um, then trying to understand how to cope, mm-hmm. before I understood that I don't have to cope, I can release myself, I just need to find the right tools. Um, And since that moment when I was able to actually heal myself, it's been a a point of awakening and also a point of um, departure. It's actually led to a complete rethink of how I approach my instrument, how I approach my work, how I approach teaching. Um, And everything from the way I use language to the forms of... um, support I use in everyday life, everything from from yoga and from um, an awareness of what food um, I consume to uh, what kind of a bed I sleep on, if
0: I have the choice, etc., um, has informed how I perform and how I teach. Wow. Um, there is a lot in there that I would like to dive into. Um, but first, I'm just wondering, at what point in your Career or your studies was this? Did this become an issue for you? Well, the thing about the pain that I
1: was talking about just before is that I was probably playing through or with pain from a very early age, but I wasn't recognizing it as such. Right. Um, and if you like many um, violinists and viola players, again, I'm keeping this as a very small range of people. Um, I would actually go on to say that most of the musicians I know suffer from the same problems that I'm describing. Yeah, But I just want to make sure that nobody thinks I'm overstepping. And I'm talking about trumpet players. (laughs) (laughs) When, in fact, I have never touched a trumpet sort of thing. I don't want to um, expose that sort of thinking. But I do believe that most musicians suffer. And I do use that word quite deliberately. They suffer from a form of pain that they don't even realize they're experiencing mm-hmm. because they know no difference if you start playing the violin the viola the cello any string instrument in particular at a very young age you're so used to dealing with and your body is so used to accommodating that um pain and it can be anything i mean pain can simply be that one of your shoulders is higher than the other which creates um a denser sort of tonicity in that place where you're perhaps raising your shoulder um that you after a while don't feel it as the body starts to compensate. The yeah. problem is the compensation at that point because well a, a muscle that's very tense can't really move uh properly. Right. It, it can't grow, it can't gain strength, it it actually loses um ability over time. Yeah. To perform its task. Um and to my mind, many string instrumentalists aren't the most active. So they're not the sporty ones. They're not the ones who are, you know, out there since the age of two or three kicking a football around. Yeah. And because they are lacking that sense of sporting activity, in many cases, they lack a sense of self when it comes to their body. They, yeah. they can't locate pressure points. Um, they're not able to call on certain um, elements of coordination that people who play a lot of sports and do a lot of activities can. So um, for all the amazing ability that musicians have at performing their instruments and the uh, rapid-fire speed at which they can learn things that have to do with their fingers and their arms, their minds, their ears, and so on, it's incredible how um, blind they are to the rest of their body. Um I'm speaking of myself. Uh, first and foremost, of course, uh, it's taken me years to even locate my shoulder blade, um, which is amazing, considering that it's <clears throat> more or less the start of most of the movements that I will make as a violinist.
0: Yeah, yeah, I find the same thing that that it that, uh, and I absolutely include myself in this category too. It's taken a, a very very long time to really take ownership of my body in that very intimate way where I can, I can feel it and sense it.
1: I, uh, yeah, I very much identify with that.
0: So I'm wondering if you can, um, if you can talk through a bit, so you said you got to this point, you were having migraines and you, you made the choice that you were going to solve this. I'm just wondering what that process looked like. Um, well, the migraine was simply that
1: I had difficulty in In my case. The migraine meant that I had difficulty organizing my thoughts properly. Mm-hmm. Um, what I didn't understand at the time is that most likely due to a lack of circulation of certain muscles uh, in, in, in my neck, I wasn't basically feeding my brain enough. <laughs> and so um, very simple daily activities became this huge challenge and I remember uh, performing very very difficult pieces I remember playing world premieres I remember standing on stage as soloists with orchestras and where the biggest concern should have been something like okay bar 205 is coming there's that nasty double stop hope I get this right Uh that sort of thing or even better oh bar 300 is coming and I'm just on a wave of music and it's wow I was actually primarily concerned about finding the edge of the stage and not falling off because I had no sense of depth, the world was spinning and I had this constant impression that I was suffering from some form of vertigo
0: Hmm.
1: Um, I mean it was very very it was a debilitating time in my life Um, and I learned a lot from it I learned how to focus even more I learned how to organize my memory in such a way that I could get through the day I learned how to fake it, (laughs) (laughs) but like, wow, like a pro. Um, And uh, I also learned that that is absolutely no state to be in. Um, And that the only person who can get me out is me. What I needed to do was find the people who could show me and help me find the tools to gain a sense of awareness um, and to retrain myself myself away from the postural alignment issues I was experiencing into um, what actually ultimately led to a complete rethinking of my technique of how I um, work with my instrument, how the instrument is an extension of my body, how I move, not just while playing, but it's in everything. It's in how you lie down on your bed before you go to sleep and thinking about where you're going to put your arm. How are you going to, are you going to cross your legs or are you not? Why are you not doing that? Why is crossing my legs even coming into this conversation? Aren't we talking about being a musician, right? And and it's it's actually, no, if you want to be a performing artist, um, and I don't seclude it just to being a musician, if you put yourself out there, to stand on stage and expose your soul and your heart and your love and passion for what you do to a wider audience, you need to be in the best shape of your life. And if you want to be in the best shape of your life, you need to see yourself as an athlete, and more than an athlete, because essentially an athlete needs to perform at a very high level but they don't have to interpret we not only have to run the marathon we also have to look good and sound beautiful while doing it yeah you know and that means that our bodies need to be in a state of health whatever that can mean for us at any point in our life um as polished and as clean and as healthy as possible. And that takes a huge amount of work, yeah. of rethinking. And it it actually means that there needs to be a turnaround um, in how we musicians guide the next generation in and through music, because there have been a lot of mistakes made, at least. And that's why I mentioned the word virtuoso mm-hmm. earlier on. When it comes to virtuoso playing, when it comes to that sort of competitive way of playing, um in as much as there's a lot of musicians who feel a huge pressure to be the best in class so that they can get to that olympus where they can live from being a performing musician and that really is olympus i mean how many people get there yeah how realistic is that goal um how much do we put ourselves through to to achieve a life in music you know how can we support ourselves uh through music can we sustain ourselves from a very practical financial point of view can we sustain ourselves as human beings you know with pleasure in music and um, and and see the focus of making music and not see the focus as being the best because I mean this is not a horse show you no. know we're not horses we <laughs> we are people and we shouldn't be measured by highly subjective things we should be measuring ourselves by how we feel about how we perform and play and enjoy music and if we are suffering consistently through the fact that, and here's the point, that we're being taught how to move our fingers and our arms, but we're not being taught how to move the rest of our body, how to nourish our body, how to deal um, with our body in a sustainable way. And we're not even talking about the aspect of psychology in all this because, you know, I mean, that's a very large field where I feel that most musicians um, are out of their depth. I know that I am. I can I can't say that I'm a psychologist. At best, I can try to guide people, but I, I have no degree in psychology. And yet, psychology is such a huge part of how we play and how we deal with our everyday lives. Um, we need to change how we teach and we need to change how we play if we want to have a happy life in music.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Were there particular? Um, you said that you needed to find people who would who could help you um, in in retraining. Were there particular modalities that you explored in this process? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: what I found to be most interesting is that um, within the music sphere, there were not that many um, examples to follow suit. In other words, there weren't that many people I could, you know, call up and go, hey, um, wow. I mean, I look at you and I'm like, it's, it's perfect. The body alignment, the way you move. And th- I, I know that you have a really positive lifestyle. May I study with you? There have been amazing violinists uh, in time who have performed with uh, a body alignment that is exemplary unfortunately most of them are no longer with us right so people who had that epiphany such as manuhan or people who simply were like that such as Oistrach, uh because his body alignment is wonderful um the way he plays is so uh it's it's just a, an ideal tonicity you know it's it's wonderful um we can't call on them so i ended up looking for th- uh ways of moving that was the first point of departure. So I got into Alexander Technique. Um, I got into spiral dynamics, which is something I explored. Um, Can you say what what spiral dynamics is? Spiral dynamics is a um, uh, an attitude towards how we move, to do with how we sit, stand, and lie, um, and has to do with how the alignment of our the whole system is within itself so it has to do with how we um, use our joints or don't to um, try to regain a sense of how our body was designed to move so basically um very simply said let's have a look at how people walk mm-hmm. um, that became a huge topic um although actually we, no let's let's go back to the very business. let's go back sorry I don't you want to stand. get you, I don't want to get you I too know, off, right.
0: off track I just I know most people probably will will be familiar of somewhat course. with Alexander technique but probably not with spiral dynamics
1: Spiral dynamics yeah. right right so let's let's talk about how we stand because that's like that's a very basic sort of uh, uh shall we say a neutral position that most of us are able to take um if you look at how one stands um you will see that many people don't hold the floor, shall we say, with their foot mm. in, a, in a complete way. So there's a tendency for, their, uh, for them to stand with pressure on the inside of their foot or the outside of their foot. Um, very few people stand in such a way that the weight distribution is evenly um, spaced along the foot. Um, that has a knock-on effect to how our knees are positioned. Yeah. So we can see people with O legs, X legs. Um, that in turn has a knock-on effect to how the hips uh, are aligned. Um, and so on and so forth, right up to the very top of the body. And we can see it from, from the other way down as well. You can move from the pelvis down and you know, realign the, the, the alignment of the limbs uh from any point in fact. But if for example somebody stands in a very poor way, um that will have an effect on the muscular tension throughout the body. Um long story short, um the way that I move or or, or hold my big toe on the floor could have an effect on how the tension is along my my hamstrings mm-hmm. which appears to be miles apart but if you understand something about anatomy you start to understand why you may have a pain in your hip and why this is actually coming from your toe yeah. and not just from your hip which yeah. is one of the biggest problems in physiotherapy and in fact in all kinds and forms of, of medicine I mean I went for example to a rheumatologist when I had these migraines. Um, and without wishing to suggest that the field of rheumatology isn't extremely valuable and necessary, it, my experience with rheumatology was that they would say, "Okay, you have a." I'll give you an example again of the hip. You have a problem in your hip. Let's look at your hip. Yeah. And I've learned through my process of uh, focusing and trying to understand things about anatomy, about as I said, Alexander technique, spiral dynamics, yoga, um, uh, other forms of conscious movement. Um, um, and there's is quite, quite a, a wealth of it that if you wish to find answers, um, you're going to have to look at the body and the person holistically. Yeah. It's rare that that hip problem, that <laughs> that imaginary hip problem is coming from the hip. Yeah. Uh, particularly with people of a younger age.
0: Yeah. There's a, there's a quote from, from Ida Rolf. I don't know if you've heard it. She says, She would say, where you think it is, it ain't.
1: Yeah, and I, yeah, fantastic. Yes, perfect. So, for example, I was experiencing migraines and I was experiencing that, that feeling in my, in my uh, cerebral function. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, I ended up going also to a, a neurologist because I thought maybe I had something wrong with my brain. And she's the one who, after a very long journey, placed her hands, her fingers actually, on the muscles that, that are at the base of the skull. Uh, pointing out how tense that group of muscles there was and how little blood was thrown through. Mm. And so now she had found part of the problem. And the next thing was, okay, now we've got, we found the problem. Now, how on earth am I going to go about relaxing a part of the base of the skull and neck that I didn't even know was there? Right. Um, it's a huge process. And the one thing I've learned from going down that road of trying different forms of therapies of uh, movement. Um, and finally landing to where I am now, a place where I am practicing yoga nearly daily. Um, um, constantly trying to learn more about physical awareness. Um, uh, delving into courses for, for various, like, uh, as I said, Alexander Technique was something that I went into for a while. Feldenkrais is something that I was wanted to learn from. Um, and Spiral Dynamics, as I just mentioned. Um the, uh, ultimately, what I've learned is that the process of playing the violin is actually much easier than that. What I was taught, yeah, much much easier. It's it's actually not that difficult to play the violin. What's difficult is to play the violin in a way that is as suitable for the body as it is. Given the fact that playing the violin is one of the least natural yeah. postural alignments you could possibly find for yourself.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's so fascinating. You've you've mentioned. Um, You mentioned how you had to sort of rebuild your technique and change your alignment. You also mentioned that there have been a number of lifestyle changes that you've made, and you've touched on a couple of them, but I'm wondering if you can talk about, um, you you know, there was a long process of sort of healing and and, and, um, sort of, I I hate to use the word solving, but kind of um, coming out of the acute phase, Um, and then how how do you maintain that in your life so what are some of the lifestyle things that you've taken on to stay healthy one of them is a is a complete
1: overhaul and cleaning of my attitude towards performance and playing i mentioned before the way that you know that a lot of people continue to teach violinists stuff to do with their hands do stuff with your hands move your arms you know and they teach those bits brilliantly but they have absolutely no understanding in my experience of the um, the working process I mean what what is it moving your fingers where does it come from which part of your body moves your fingers Mm -hmm. Um, obviously your brain yes but then what else is connected why are you so for example I know a lot of people who get uh, what they think is tendonitis, and then a series of cortisone injections to solve the problem because their index finger is all bent and funny when they wake up and everything hurts Right. Yeah. Well, I, I've understood in the meantime that very often that that bendy first finger, that index finger, has nothing to do with tendonitis. There may be a swelling, yes. That there yeah. may be an inflammation, but the problem is actually coming from the bicep or from the shoulder. Right. Um, and um, in fact, if it weren't for the fact that that artist has gone to get that injection because they're playing that night and they can't with a bent index finger. Um, they could solve the problem quite quickly through uh, a series of, of exercises that that get to the problem, that get to the root of the problem. So um, the first thing was a, a mental change uh, when it came to playing, understanding what I'm doing, mm-hmm. understanding anatomically how am I moving through time and space when I play the violin. Um, and that meant going from the root up. that meant understanding everything, from how I sleep, how I stand, how I walk, how I move, Um, and it also meant involving myself uh, and throwing myself in the deep end when it came to doing things that move my entire body, from gaga dancing to um, uh, yoga, as I said before. Um, There's also been a huge learning curve from that. I've learned more from my problems than from having no problems. Yeah. (laughs) Although I've had incredible teachers for the violin and for music, my biggest teacher has been gravity and Mm. an understanding of anatomy. Um, And I've learned a lot also from other spheres. I mean, I've learned about phrasing from wind instrumentalists. I've learned about phrasing from vocalists because they are using air and expelling and inhaling and exhaling air to create and expand space in their body And then to let go of that energy, which creates sound, which is something that the fewest string instrumentalists are are talked to about. Mm -hmm. I've changed how I eat, uh, which has been a very important part of things. I've changed how and when I sleep. Mm -hmm. Um, I've changed what I lie on when I sleep. I've changed um, from the very basic, you know, uh, the pillow on which I sleep. Well... How thick is it? Where does it touch? I mean, I actually have three or four different pillows now (laughs) of differing um, thickness, depending on on how I feel when I lie down, what kind of day I've had, you know? How much support do I need? Um, And it's all to do with how I I feel it and understanding that feeling and trying to locate a point of discomfort and figuring out how to ease that discomfort. Um, Unfortunately... Um what I've noticed, on the other hand, is that when I try to show or guide uh, my students through those things, it's generally the ones who are aware of pain or of discomfort or of hurdles that coexist with themselves and their playing who are most open to change. Yeah. I find people aren't really open to change, certainly not to dietary change. I mean, that's one of the hardest ones. Mm-hmm. Um But they're not really open to it unless they've got to a point where they realize they have to. It's a bit like smokers, you know, like the ones who really take pleasure in smoking. They're never going to stop until somebody goes, well, you kind of have to now. Yeah. Um, That incentive to change uh, is often the catalyst that needs to be there for people to change. And I'm wondering if that is the case and it is so difficult to change. And you need so many reasons to change. Wouldn't it just be more effective to start those violinists off the right way? Those first teachers that are teaching those young people, wouldn't it be wonderful if they are ones who have an understanding, uh, a holistic understanding, a holistic approach to teaching? I think we could solve a lot of problems that way.
0: Yeah, I agree. I see this too in my own teaching. I teach sort of university age, so sort of 18 to 24-ish year olds and um I, I find the, the same thing, that people who aren't in pain or aren't struggling um, in any way are are often a little bit resistant to developing the habits that are going to maybe create a more sustainable career. I completely agree. And I think...
1: What happens a lot is that I can show, for example, again, going back to that virtuoso style of playing, I and we're talking here about people who actually need to learn a Paganini Caprice, and they need to learn it within a week, right? And that's because they've decided they need to. So they need to do Paganini, first of all, and they need to do it in a week. Okay, fine. I'm not going to stand in the way. That's what makes them get up in the morning, fair enough. (laughs) And then (laughs) that's me. I mean, I go in there, and now it's expected of me. I'm their teacher, so it's expected of me to give them tools to play this piece. And my concerns aside as to whether I think this is good music and whether I think it's useful to learn it in such a short amount of time, um, my objective is that I would like them to have the tools to play with as much ease as possible. Mm -hmm. Because some of the most convincing performers are the ones who do it with ease. And what I've learned in the last 10 or 12 or 15 years that I'm really... Actually, it's more. I'd say it's nearly 20 years now that I'm really into this. Um, I used to think they, that the, the art skill was not making it look easy. Now I realize that it actually is easy for these players. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Martha Argovich does actually sit down and go, oh, this is, a, well, I mean, this is, of course, Schumann, but it is easy. Yeah. And she plays it that way. Yeah. There's a very famous video as well of Maria Joao Um, I say it's a video because um, I I wasn't there for the live performance um, and I didn't see it on TV. There's this moment in her career where she's um, on stage, I think, with the Concertgebouw Orchestra, if I'm not mistaken, and she's supposed to be playing Concerto A. I don't know. I can't remember what it was. And while the orchestra starts performing, she starts having a discourse with the conductor going "Holland, This is not what I've learned this is you're playing you guys are playing the wrong piece and he's like no no this this is on the program and she's like well I haven't played this and I don't know how many years and you can hear this you know this <laughs> is happening while they're playing the hall is full and you can hear it on the mics because it was being televised and and she's like no I can't play this can we please play what I've learned and there's the over I mean the the introduction still going on Conductor, conductor's like you can do this and it's, it's, it's an excruciating, it's quite a long, I think it's Mozart, and it's like an excruciating two-minute thing to watch. And every sensible musician is going to look at that and go, oh, my God, I would die a thousand times. Mm-hmm. And then she plays, and she plays like a goddess. It's absolutely divine. And it's obvious that she's struggling, and it's obvious that she's like, oh. But what's also very obvious is the way she's playing, the the physical, the the way that she plays this, it's as if it's nothing. Wow. It's like she's drinking a glass of water. Yeah. And so at least that pressure, that that physical the the, the problems that we can encounter when we don't try to relieve ourselves of physical stress is not in her way. And it's the same with that that student who comes in wanting to learn this Paganini caprice. If they're the ones who practice blindly, you know, practicing for the sake of practicing and and believing in the whole, I have to do eight hours of practice to be amazing. um, It's going to be very hard for me to break through when I tell them, look, if you just move your thumb slightly this way, you will um, stop causing, you know, uh, unnecessary strain on on your thenar eminence, which is the muscle there at the base of your thumb, which will allow your hand to move more freely, which means that you're going to be able to set into motion a series of um, memory functions of your muscles, which means that maybe in three days' time, you'll play this passage without thinking perfectly in tune, and it'll cause less strain on your left hand. And then you're going to find students who go, oh, okay, that means that I'm going to have to spend maybe two days practicing with great awareness and presence, you know, Mm -hmm. because it means changing a whole series of physical patterns I've been accumulating, to try and play quickly and fast and wow and virtuose. um and those two days are going to be super painful uh-huh. i mean mentally they're going to be very painful physically i'm going to feel great mentally it's going to be like oh my god yeah and by day three it's going to be wow and though th- you've got students who embrace that yeah. and then you've got the ones who are like yeah no i prefer to do that eight hour thing where I have this constant impression that by repeating the same thing over and over again will make me better. Einstein had a, a beautiful quote. He said, An idiot is the one who imagines that they will have a different outcome despite doing the same thing over <laughs> yeah. and over again. Um and and that's basically the thing. You're you're open to this or you're not. And if you're not open to it, I think it will turn around and, and hit you at some point of your life if you're not ready to concern yourself with your body, which is in fact the very first thing we're using when we play. I mean, we need the body to get to the end of the process. If the if the process is that we hear a note, we imagine that note, we imagine how beautiful that note could be, and then we release that note, Yeah. Yeah if that's the real process we still need to include our bodies to sound that note and whether we do that through our vocal cords or through movement um if our bodies aren't healthy we're never going to be able to get to that place where we he- where we play exactly what we hear
0: yeah yeah it's, this is you know one of the things over the years you know i've been teaching university now for about 20 years and it's it's one of the things I've learned over time is that you really, um, you can't make a student ready to hear or experiment or engage with anything. Um, You know, there's certain conditions I think you can set up as a teacher that make it more likely that students will be open to things. And ultimately, they're going to, they'll learn things when, when it becomes really relevant for them. Um, while we're talking about your teaching, um, I, I'm curious about something you said earlier, where you said that um, part of your kind of rethinking and relearning how to, you know, your relationship with your instrument and with your body was also considering the type of language that you use. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that.
1: Yes, Um there's the obvious uh, thing, which I'm not sure if, if that's what I meant, but I mean uh, the use of language. And okay, so what is language? Language is a, is a form of communication, and what is music? Music is a form of communication. So um, basically, a, a musician is a vessel uh, for communication. Um, and what I've found is that I've changed what I say and how I say it because of my understanding of, of, uh, of the body. For, so, for example, where a teacher might say to a seven-year-old or a six-year-old, uh, relax, you know, relax your left hand. Um, unless you're teaching an, a, 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 an extremely precocious child, um, that statement, that, that command to relax is a complete waste of time. Um, it's the wrong word. It's the wrong word on a very uh, sort of skilled level because what does relax mean if you see it from the point of view of the tonicity of the muscles, right? Mm-hmm. Relax uh, for for most people is like you know sitting in a chair like a sack of potatoes. That's relaxed to them. That is not relaxed. That creates strain and stress on the body in other ways. Um, what the teacher probably means when they're saying to that six-year-old that they have to relax is that they want the child to go from a sort of a very light swinging movement of the arm that isn't fixed to a uh, 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 posture or, or rather to a uh, stance held by the arm. Um, yeah, it's very difficult to explain this in words, actually. I don't think can. If I can't show it, if I can't demonstrate yeah. what I mean with swinging and so on, it's very hard to yeah. explain this.
0: Yeah, but I appreciate what you're saying, that that something like relax is is... Um, not just imprecise, but also not actually what we want. It's it's more about the sort of balance of engagement. Mm-hmm. But of course, you can't come to that
1: conclusion unless you actually have any understanding at all about anatomy. And what I find is that some of the best teachers, at least in my trade, in my profession, um, if you're standing on stage as a soloist and it is expected of you to perform Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto, okay, that's a sort of um that's kind of a that's a very stylistic uh, ambitious undertaking, and uh many of the teachers uh, in the field of violin playing at least in Europe who in the past have been able to teach that best um are also teachers who can be quite rough with how they treat their students you know um, there's a lot of um impatience mm-hmm. in teaching uh there's a lot of um Lack of forgiveness in teaching, um, and depending on where you're from and what era you're from, there's a lot of pressure and a lot of uh, so-called psycho terror uh-huh. <laughs> placed upon placed upon students in an, in a bid to make them play better. In other words, if I scare the living daylights out of this student, they'll practice better and harder.
0: Yeah, well,
1: they're not going to practice better; they're just going to practice more. Right, um, and they're going to get stiffer and stiffer in their body and their mind. Um, so language and, and how you speak to students and, 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 and what it is, what message you're trying to get across is is extremely important when you want them to play with ease at the same time having said that again if a student is not on the same wavelength um, they'll just think that you're taking it easy on them and they don't have to bother <laughs> it's true <So> it's, <laughs> it's a tightrope walk it really
0: is <laughs> Um, I want to talk about your upcoming, um, course that you are, um, I guess you would say that you're the artistic director and curator of this course, um, called the Exhale coming up in April. Mm -hmm. That's right. I'm wondering if you can talk about what, what it is and why you've created it. With pleasure. Um, the Exhale is a collection
1: of my experiences in one place. Um, and it's actually a boutique course. Uh, it's, it's for people who have realized that they're looking for answers to questions they haven't quite formed yet, hmm. um, and they have no idea where to turn, uh, and if they feel that way, then they feel the way I did around 20 years ago. Um, where you start to realize that there are problems in your playing or problems in your attitude or in your way of being as a musician, you don't quite know where they're coming from, Or maybe you figure that one out, but you don't know how to overcome it or how to face it head on. Um, And you certainly don't know what expert to go to to get any enlightenment whatsoever. Um, And I've started collecting experts in their field for this boutique course. And and what it is, is, you know, it's like, okay, we've got uh, the main ingredient. The main ingredient is your instrument. And if your instrument is the violin, the viola, Or the cello then in this first course in this first edition i'm serving this as the main course (laughs) um and so now we've got this main course and now our question is well what are you eating and you know like what are your starters what's your dessert and and what's going into that main course and and that's where i've put things together in a way that is fairly new uh certainly from a european perspective (laughs) And the newness can be seen in the daily schedule. We start our day with yoga. Hmm. Um, And we start with yoga um, devoid of a particular tradition. Because when a lot of people think about yoga, they have this image of a yogini and whatever that means to them. And there's so many different cliches that I'm not even going to start talking about it here, you know. (laughs) I say yoga and you already have a picture. (laughs) Right. Um, (laughs) When we started actually talking about the exhale on our website, we were really pondering whether to use that word yoga Hmm. or whether it was going to be too prescriptive. But then in the end, it was like, yeah, okay, it is, well, you know, how to avoid... Of course, we talk about movement, and we talk about um, movement therapy, but it is through yoga. So, we start our day with yoga. Um, She happens to be an expert in Jiva Mukti and in Ashtanga Yoga, but she's also a a studied yoga therapist. And she's mainly my yoga teacher for a number of years, so she's very in tune with what kind of problems I show up with uh, during daily practice. And she's, of course, involved and immersed herself in my series of issues, which are partially also very common things that string instrumentalists um, will have. And so we're going to start our days with trying to see whether we can help ourselves to um, find ourselves within our bodies and to understand what parts of us are the musician and what parts of us are like every other person. Mm -hmm. Can we access our trapezius muscles? Do we know what they are? Do we know what they're there for? Um, can we access, um, um, you know, whatever, different kinds of movement to, to, for example, stretch out the, the series of, of movements and muscles that we use in daily life as musicians. And after yoga, we're going to eat. We're going to eat together and we're going to have some conscious eating going on. So we're going to be cooked for by two wonderful young chefs who are buying produce from the local marg- uh, market. And we're going to eat simple food. We're going to eat fruits and vegetables. And we're going to eat um, oats. And we're going to, for example, for breakfast. And we're going to eat things that we can make ourselves because these cooks are going to tell us, and they're going to walk us through what we're eating, how they made it, how simple it was to make. Nice. Um, and what it is doing for us. And and why, for example, it hasn't been fried in olive oil because that you know depletes the purpose of olive oil in the first place. Um, you know, frying anything in olive oil, uh, the the nutritiousness of of, of virgin cold-pressed olive oil is is gone. Right. But a lot of people don't know that because they haven't been explained that. So there's a whole bunch of musicians out there um, and I know them because I I even saw them last night. You know, the concert's concert's on, goes on late, it's 11 o'clock, we're hungry, what we're going to do, nothing's open, hello McDonald's, you know. Yeah. That's not going to solve our problems. And if they... Except the fact that they oh well I can't cook. You know, I'm a prodigy since I'm four years old. I was never taught how to cook. That's a cheap excuse. <laughs> <laughs> you know. We need to we need to, to to gain ownership of what we put in our mouths. Literally. Yeah. We need to kind of be nutritious. We need to be aware of what we're eating. We need to understand that if we consume a lot a lot a lot of white wine and at the same time time we seem to have ailments um in our ligaments. There could be a connection. Yeah. You know, uric acid, how are you? So these are things that most people won't know. And therefore we're gonna in a very simple way show people what they could eat three times a day that will give them strength, more energy and, and help them. Um and after we've eaten, we're going to start with individual lessons on our instruments. We're also going to have chamber music, which is something that I feel very strongly about. Mm -hmm. I think it opens up our ears. It opens up our humanity, our sense of connection with people. Um, It's an important language within music and within cultural understanding. And then it gets exciting. We're going to have different workshops every evening. And we're going to focus and talk about things that are bugbears of musicians. We're going to talk about breath awareness. We are going to show people a class of meditation. We are going to uh, have a class on the topic of improvisation, which is something that has become unfashionable <laughs> within classical music spheres, which is a huge loss. Yeah, because without improvisation, what is where is baroque music? Yeah. You know? And how many people haven't understood that connection? Um, because now in the meantime, people think improvisation is just something they do in jazz. Um when in fact improvisation w- was a very common aspect of music making up until the nineteenth century um we're going to have classes on stage fright hmm. and how to overcome stage fright and um and 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 rechannel that energy into a positive understanding of the experience on stage um We're going to talk about insomnia caused by the stresses and pressures we feel as musicians in daily life. Because it doesn't matter whether we're struggling to pay the bill or whether we're struggling on stage or whether we're struggling to try and find the right way to teach or whether we're struggling trying to find the right way to learn. Um, these pressures can keep us awake at night yeah. and and cause um, a certain type of thinking that we need to break through and and it's something that's absolutely not talked about at universities in most cases Um, because it i'm going to avoid psychology but it does delve into thinking patterns and what what is we say to ourselves and what we make ourselves believe um, and how we can break through this uh, cycle because there's nothing worse than trying to learn when our bodies and minds are too tired to Mm -hmm. accept knowledge we're also going to dip our toe into dyspokinesis which is a um, a technique um, founded by a a Dutch gentleman. Um, It's a series of understanding of movements. It's a series of um, explanations. It's it's a topic to itself devised for musicians in an attempt to relieve them of physical strain and pressure whilst performing. And it's actually something designed for all kinds of musicians not just string instrumentalists and we have an expert in her field uh, here in Switzerland who is going to be teaching that as well and now you might imagine and ask well okay, so you've got one week the the exhale is one week and in one week you want to do all these things you want to give them daily lessons and chamber music and three meals a day and then all these workshops and yoga and well, why? well, the point is not to give people the answers. Um, the point is to give them access yeah. to the answers. Um, I'm not gonna be able to solve anybody's problems in an hour. Um, I, I I know very few people who can. I know some osteopaths who can, in fairness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't think that within the bigger picture I can solve anybody's issues uh, in an hour. But I can lend them um, a space through which they can discover vast hallways filled with doors they can open and peek inside to see if any of these things um, resonate within them. Can they go in resonance with yoga? Is there any pleasure they derive from movement, from concentrated movement that has no aspiration to be best, uh, to be the best, uh, to make a point and prove oneself? It's simply connecting with, uh, it's a connection between thought and body. mm mm-hmm. Um, can I inspire somebody when I say to them come let's go and talk to somebody who understands something about meditation Um, shall we sit down and try to figure out whether we can call on tools to relax in a conscious way um, and in an immediate way so that we can call upon these before we go on stage if we're having a hard day Um, and my hope is that people will take away from this a certain journey they've decided to undertake Um, with with tools that that they can access back home as well, that they may wish to delve deeper into, or that they may have heard of something from one of the students or one of the teachers along the way that opens their mind to new ways to access information. Um, And essentially at the end of this course, unlike most courses where the aim is to perform in front of your peers, Mm -hmm. there is no such performance. There may be internal sort of jam sessions, yeah. you know. I can imagine that that's definitely up my alleyway. But there is absolutely no performance, not because of any other reason than this isn't about impor- performance. This is about how can we impact individuals to um, learn without pressure. Yeah. How can you internalize an entire experience without feeling the need to expose yourself to gain recognition. This is not about gaining recognition. This is about gaining an understanding of yourself as a performer, as a musician, as a teacher, as a student, and taking away from the exhale that very sense of exhalation,
0: of release and relief. That's really beautiful, the way that you put that. So it's a more inward-facing experience, it sounds like. Absolutely. It's an inward journey. It's... um.
1: It's trying to um, it's actually a place of softness. I find that within the sphere of performance, there's so much hard and rough and raw energy mm-hmm. um, which is wonderful on stage and can be very inspiring for musicians and performers and and I should say their their audience. But if you constantly live under this strain of hardship, You know, you have to, and it has to be in tune. And if you don't play this note, you're going to lose your job. You're going to lose the gig. You're going to lose the promoter. You're going to lose that member listening to you um, in the audience and so on. If it's constantly a, a quest for survival, then the very point of existence isn't one of
0: enjoyment. No. Well, I think that that is a really beautiful note to wrap up on unless there is anything else you were hoping we'd talk about that i didn't ask you um no i mean from from my point of view karen i'm
1: very um i'm i'm baffled by the um, i'm really baffled by the fact that um there seem to be relatively few voices um that as of yet understand what you and I are talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't quite know whether that's based on the fact that the curriculum in most universities still doesn't uh, embrace the topics that we've um, touched upon, which is basically physical and mental health uh, for musicians. Um, And I don't know whether that's because there's a fear to go there. It's (laughs) such a broad topic. I mean, where do you begin? Where does it end? And the realization that there is no end and that maybe it's to do with the fact that in three years as an undergrad, you can't learn about this as well as, you know, mastering scales and all this other stuff. And yet it's such an integral part of what we do that I feel that the exhale is something that is going to be of great benefit to professional musicians and teachers who um, are willing to embrace the fact that as a professional been suffering injury and don't know what to do about it or in fact that there's even a stigma about talking about it it's like i mean i don't know if you're aware of this karen but i mean i can i won't do it but i can name (laughs) i can name many musicians who have had to take forced breaks from the stage and from their jobs because of massive injuries that are just years and years of accumulated misunderstanding of how to move and how to be a musician I mean, these are big names. Um, uh, people like, I mean, any anybody listening to your to your podcast will know these names, and will kind of go, "Well, I actually kind of knew that, or I sensed <laughs> that, or you can <laughs> see that." Yeah. Watch them play, and you're like, "They are amazing musicians," but on how on earth do they do it? I mean, look where that shoulder is, or yeah. <laughs> check out that thumb, or oh my god, that neck position, you know and the problem is that they actually do end up paying for it and it's horrible to watch yeah because these are some of our leading lights of music who then disappear because they literally physically can't perform and i i most of the time the information we receive is the audiences oh well they're on sabbatical or they've gone on a world trip or whatever yeah but that's not true so there's a there's a taboo to um talking about injury in our in our worlds of music Where for an athlete, it's absolutely normal to have physio every single day or a massage every single day or to have a coach screaming at you, why didn't you eat your spinach sort of thing? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Or stop drinking beer. It's not conducive to a healthy lifestyle. You're not going to run faster on the pitch. How come that's not something that we're talking about in classical music? It's seen as a sign of weakness. If you have tendinitis, then that's because you're a bad musician. I mean, that's like, I'm giving it now. I mean, I'm telling you how people talk about each other. Yeah. Tendonitis is not because you're a bad <laughs> musician. Um, tendonitis is, 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 there's, there's, is, there's something strained in your physical uh, playing of a certain thing over years accumulated. And now your body's had enough and you need to fix the problem. And there's no need to go under the scalpel. You can fix the problem. It's not being talked about. It's a massive problem. And I'm baffled as to why it's not uh, being spoken about more openly. And I really hope that at the exhale, people feel that they're in a safe space, that they're in a safe environment, that they can share their experiences. And I'm actually hoping that it can be for many people a turning point, not just in their lives, but for the collective consciousness that we have as musicians.
0: Yeah. I mean, I do think that it, it is... I, my sense is that it's being spoken about a little bit more openly now, but that that actually having this really take hold in the way musicians are trained is such a huge cultural shift. Um, it's really slow going.
1: It's very slow going, and perhaps it's because of a very simple reason, and that is because, I don't know how you've experienced this, Karen, but... I I had to go through the process of being injured or being in pain. And I had to go through those two decades of looking for alternative solutions. Yeah, And immerse myself in course after course after course. That meant going to classes about Alexander Technique. That means going uh, to yoga. That means getting on the mat every morning and experiencing it anew. And uh, developing uh, different kinds of movements. That also means that my own yoga teacher... Is being challenged by me. Uh, I'm I'm asking her, look, why does this hurt? Can you help me? Can I stretch this out? Yeah. And her going, oh, that's really interesting. I've never thought about it that way before. Um, and if you're open to it and you find it interesting, it's super exciting. But it takes years of of knowledge and accumulated knowledge. And perhaps it's more that can be expected of of a, of a teacher um, at in their early years. I don't know. Maybe that's the problem.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know either. I think about this a lot. But I am hopeful. You know, when I when I speak to you and lots of other people I've spoken to for the podcast, it does make me feel hopeful that it's um that we're gaining some traction. Mm-hmm. I, I think so. I hope so. Uh, very quickly, before we sign off, yes. can you just let listeners know if they want to learn more about you um, or the exhale, where they could go? Sure. <clears throat> so uh, if they
1: want to learn more about me, um, which I'll be very excited about, <laughs> <laughs> they can visit uh, my website, GwendolynMason.com or put my name into Google and let it come up with search functions. There's Uh, quite some material collected online about me in the meantime, because I'm a recording artist. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of recordings out there in in visual form, obviously and in audio form, Um, more importantly. Um, And if they want to learn about the exhale, they can go to the hyphen exhale.com.
0: Okay. I'll link that in the show notes so people can find it. That'd be wonderful. Yeah.
1: Because interestingly enough, um, Despite the fact that yoga is very much in now, um, to my knowledge, there is no course that's actually called the Exhale, um, except for our own. So, yeah, awesome. they can visit that. And if they have questions, they can go to the contact page
0: and pop us an email. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. This has just been really um, inspiring and also really nourishing hearing your thoughts on all these things
1: thank you so much for inviting me to speak with you and to share my thoughts which i hope i will still
0: agree with a year from now (laughs) we shall see we shall see all right thank you very much thank you bye-bye and that is the show for this week Big thanks to Gwendolyn for taking time to speak with me and thank you to you as always for tuning in. If you want to get in touch with a question or a comment or even an idea for the show, you can email me at Karen at musicmindandmovement.com or you can touch base on social media, which honestly I'm not really on social media that much these days. But some days I'm on there uh, at Music Mind and Movement on Facebook and Instagram show notes live over on my website, www.musicmindandmovement.com. So any links that we referred to in this episode will be over there. Okay, I think that's it for now. I look forward to speaking with you next time.